And now, part two of the post-U.S. Open episode of No Challenges Remaining. No Challenges Remaining. Taylor Townsend, um, top seed in juniors in the girls' draw. She, we saw her. I'm not sure if you, actually if you watched her matches in Australia or not, but um, play quite a bit. Yeah, she uh, she won the girls' title down in Australia when we were there. Super bubbly kid, weird sort of unconventional game for the modern game. She's like serving volleyer a lot of times and lefty and you know good serve. It's really solid volley. Great, great doubles player. She won uh, three junior grand slams and doubles this year. So. Uh, so everything would seem to be great. She's, you know, to the sense there's sort of people in the pipeline on the women's side, she's one of the names people get talked about a lot. However, um, it seemed like from what we heard, and there was a lot of conflicting reports about this, but the, ba- the main report seems to be that the USCA did not want her at the US Open. Can you explain to the people who may not know why that would be, Courtney? Sure. Um, so the story was, was uh, broken. The Open by Tom Parada. He's a very nice guy uh, who writes yeah. the Wall Street Journal. Um, but Tom Parada reported that um, the USTA had made a decision a few months ago, actually, to not fund Taylor Townsend's travel expenses, I think, um, to the, 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 the U.S. Nationals and then to the U.S. Open until she, and this is where it becomes a little bit uh, fuzzy, whether or not it means lose weight or get fitter or commit to her fitness, uh, whatever the code words were. Um, but as a woman, uh, if somebody were to say that to me, I would think that what they were telling me is that I needed to lose weight yeah, to slim down. And to be fair, I have seen Taylor Townsend play at the, uh, the U.S. Open last year. I saw her play at the Aussie. Is that a comment that comes up? relatively frequently among people who watch her uh yes in terms of her needing to you know it kind of comes up in a more positive way though of like oh man if that kid gets fit like she's so good now just imagine how good she'd be if she gets fit imagine if she gets fit uh she'll be phenomenal but she's 16 years old she i mean at 16 years old your body is in a completely different place than it would be when it's 18 20 22 yeah. but anyway so, so the news came out that the USDA was withholding effectively funding until Taylor Townsend had uh, focused which on Which prevented her from playing the junior nationals, which could have gotten her a main draw spot had she won that. And also prevented her from, or advised her against enter, or didn't give her a wild card, rather, for qualifying women's right. singles, too. That, which she so played last year. Exactly. That's the thing, is that last year... She was given a wild card into main draw qualifying. She lost in the second. She actually won a match as a 15-year-old and lost to Laura Robson in the second round. This year, she was denied that same wild card, um, despite, despite the fact being the top-ranked junior. She had better results this year than she had last year. So the, the whole thing doesn't make sense. Uh, Parada broke the story. I think, you know, I wrote, obviously, a post uh, really condemning the USCA for what they had done here. I think that you know, and a lot of the comments that had come back that were in defense of the USTA were, you know, what athlete is not told to focus on their fitness? What athlete is not, you know, coached this way? Like, why are we having this whole 
hubbubaloo about an athlete being told they need to be in, in better shape. And to me, my response almost seems unnecessary because it's it's so common sense. But this is a 16 year old kid. Yeah. Uh, this is not a 23, 24, 25 year old athlete who has committed their entire career to this sport. She's a 16 year old kid who plays this sport because she loves it, who is bubbly, who is happy. And she's dominating. She's the number one ranked junior. She's not some kid in the 40s or 50s or 60s. And you're already putting this pressure on her. And I think uh, Martina Navratilova and Lindsay Davenport made really good points. Uh, Parada interviewed them. And they said, what about those kids who have horrible attitudes but are in good shape? You're not going to say anything to them. But you're going to focus on this kid who's the number one. And by your standards, like literally limping around the court but somehow is winning matches um, and is, is the top-ranked junior at 16 years old. So what... and, that's, and that's what you need for future development. I mean, you need to play matches. Exactly. That's the, one of the huge things about it. I mean, fitness can come later. And both of those, the, I mean, he picked those, the women he interviewed, Prada did wisely, because both Navratilova and Davenport were both, by their own admissions, you know, much pudgier than they were in their teens and coming onto tour for the first time. And they still had pretty good success, even at their higher weights. And then when they slimmed out eventually, as they got into their 20s, um, they got even better. But they I mean, wouldn't have been as good in their 20s if they hadn't had the match experience they had in their teens. Or maybe they weren't in, you know, personal trainer level fitness. Because here's the thing, is that, you know, again, like, this is so frustrating to hear because I think... You know, Lindsay Davenport had made this comment where she asked, like, were there any women involved in this decision to withdraw funding? And obviously, Taylor Townsend is coached by Kathy Rinaldi, who's had great success. She coaches uh, Sam Crawford as well, who won the women's junior girls title. Big game on Crawford, by the way. Yeah, totally. Um, Lots to like about Samantha Crawford, for sure. But, um, but yeah, I mean, there were a lot of... Lindsay said was the same thing I thought, because like for me, you know, when I look back at, you know, when I was an athlete in, in high school, not in tennis, but in other sports, but when I was in high school, no matter how many sit-ups I did, no matter how many miles I ran or how many shuttle runs or push-ups or whatever, I was a certain body type and it wasn't real thin and it didn't look like an athlete, but I was good at what I did. And it wasn't until, you know, I became, you know, I, I crossed through college and through my 20s that body kind of slimmed down naturally. I was, like, working out less, but yeah. my, my metabolism, had kind of, I had grown into my body, and my body had figured out, you know, what it needed to be. And so to tell a kid when, when body issues are such a real thing for women, you know, and um, to tell it from that, I think Greg Couch said it perfectly today, which is that when she hears fitness, what she hears is fatness and that is just, Oh, it's absolutely infuriating. And so, you know, I hope, and the USTA obviously backtracked after all this hit the wire. Um, They have since agreed to pay uh, Townsend's expenses at the U S open, but that doesn't mean that it didn't rob her from an opportunity to play maybe a main draw. They could have given her a main draw wild card. Yeah. If she got in the main draw wild card, that would have been totally justified. I mean, Victoria Duvall got a main draw wild card. I mean, obviously she earned it, but like they could have. Trying, trying to trying to think of who else got one. Who Coco? On, who? Coco. Coco. Yeah, Coco made the Stanford final though. Coco was deserving. Um, 
And I'm saying that there were these wild cards that were available to them. And it sure. um, to at least put her up through qualifying where she's already proven that she can hang with the girls that are in there. And so, yeah. I don't know. I mean, I, I obviously wrote my comments on it for SI, but, but uh, Ben, if you have any additional ones, fire away. No, I mean, that's basically it. I, I, I do think there is, I mean... I didn't talk about. I didn't write an article about it. I think we had somebody else covering it for the Times, um, which is just what happens a lot. Because I mean, for right. me anyway, because you you're you do also have these issues with Sports Illustrated not being able to overlap too much, topic wise with what other SI writers are doing. Um, obviously, the same thing as the New York Times. So I don't get to write about everything I would like to write about theoretically, but I manage just fine. Um, but with Taylor, um, I don't know that more attention really helps the situation. You know, I don't know that bringing her on Good Morning America is going to make her feel better about herself or anything. And so that That's, part of it made me feel a little awkward. When oh. people were tweeting at her and stuff, you know, like, you know, don't give up, whatever, even if she did appreciate the messages. I don't know. I just felt like the whole thing maybe would have been better if it never. I, it's good that it got made public because it did rectify it, the situation. Seemed to anyway, or at least, you know, made the USDA more accountable for what they were doing. But, uh, yeah, the whole thing being public, I think, is sort of – it just went, it went really viral in terms of tennis story in the second week of the Open. Yep. It got picked up everywhere. Yep. Such, a, such explosive issues about, uh, about you know, young girls and body image and so on and so forth. So. No, I mean, I think that that's right, is that, uh, you know, I was very hesitant to kind of deal with it just because, you know, we know what we're talking about when we're talking about this. Yeah. Wait. It's not about – oh, she's good enough and she's the number one junior and the USTA is shooting itself in the foot about junior development. Yes, all of those things are true. That was part of it. But the reason why the story has been picked up by every outlet that I've seen, whether it be Jezebel or Slate or Deadspin, whoever, is because it's a weight issue and it's about, you know... Uh, On Good Morning America, when they interviewed her, the little marquee under her said, too fat to play, question mark? Like... Uh, Brutal. What, what are you doing? I can't. Yeah. And the, but just, at the end of the day, the USTA has started it. Yeah, they did. They should have seen, just regardless of what you're trying to do, USTA should have seen optics on this issue was bad. They have had a horrible, you know, um, track record with African-American tennis players, whether it be Serena and Venus, whether it be Donald Young. Obviously, that's not to say that they're racist or anything like that. I'm not even coming close to saying that, but right. I have to recognize that that is kind of an issue that has been has existed. And then to come down on this kid for weight issues, come on, like, are you really that amateur about how you're dealing with these media, you know, faux pas? It, it's so bad. And for what? For a few thousand dollars? Yeah, and for just, I mean, if it, you mean. It's not like if she's. It's totally different if she's a pro. If yep. there's if there's a if there's a woman who's you know and there are women like this on the tour, who are you know twenty three, twenty four, and their fitness is holding them back, and you're a federation and you want to say you know you got to do this, give them an ultimatum of some sort. Fine, she's an adult. It's still more a delicate issue for women. I understand, but it's totally different when it's a kid. Right. So, so that's that. Um, yeah, so that was a big story second week, and uh, Taylor did win the girls' doubles, so she got sort of, you know, ended on a high note for her, which is good. And she and she actually said in Australia that she 
always saw herself as a doubles player first, which I thought was interesting. Yeah. Even like being a teenager, she's like, yeah, I'll be a good doubles player. But uh, so she will. She does seem on pace to be a great, great doubles player. And uh, we'll see uh, how she does in the pros because I think that she is a name to watch for sure. And a lot of people said to you know some like radio hits and stuff when you're at Grand Slams. People ask you to do that. So I was on British radio a bunch. And they were kind of asking me, like, oh, who's the next big American? Is a big American? And it is a tricky label to give anybody because it can be just as much of an albatross as a uh, a title, as Donald Young can probably tell you. But uh, Taylor Townsend does seem like there's a lot of hope there. So hopefully all of this did nothing to uh, derail her. I agree. Or hopefully, I mean, I'm sure it did derail her a little bit, honestly. I hope she can get back on the rails quickly. So that's that. Other, other, I feel like there's a lot we haven't talked about this slam. Um, we have some questions, maybe we can... We do have questions? All right, you went hunting for questions? I did, and we can okay. those and see if they cover the rest of whatever we need to talk about. Let's do it. Okay. So, <clears throat> first question. I... Hold on, let's pull that back separately. There it is. Oh, I think this one is directed at me. From H... Uh, H. Janap. Okay. At each Janap. The question is a non-tennis question. Dana, Stephen, Julia, Mary, Bothkill. If anybody knows what this question is referring to, then you will understand my answer, which I will make very, very quickly. Mary, Dana, uh, Boff, Julia, kill Stephen. I have absolutely no idea what you're talking about. Pretty fine. Uh, I'm going to leave it cryptic, but those who, who know what that's referring to know what I'm saying. And if you didn't, me i will throw punches because i just don't understand how you could book those all right and next question from curtis 07 hi curtis hey curtis uh will finally ending her slam quarterfinal drought have any positive impact on anna despite not beating a seated player ben um when we when you heard when i heard that we were asking for questions i did have a feeling we'd get a chance to talk about anna I don't know. I do think it was a big psychological... Well, let me give background, because not everyone knows right? Maybe what he's talking about. Um, Anna Ivanovich had not made a slam quarterfinal since winning the 2008 French Open. Long time. Gap of something like 17 grand slams without doing that. For someone who had made something like three of the previous five slam finals before that. I mean, this completely, after she won, she completely fell off a cliff results-wise. And uh, hitting a ceiling of not of the fourth round. So she gets to play Parankova in the fourth round of the U S open this year, gets through and then gets crushed by Serena in the quarters. Um, do I think it helps her psychologically? Maybe. I mean, but she's still draw dependent. Anna hasn't shown that she can consistently beat the real top players at this point. And part of it was in her draws. Um, that when she was getting stuck before like the 13th or 16th section of the draw of the seedings, that she'd run into a one through four seed in the fourth round. And whether that was Kvitova or Azarenka at Wimbledon or Serena last year here or something, I'm not, not exactly how that worked, but for sake of argument, um, she couldn't do it. So if she keeps her ranking up, she'll keep making more quarters. I do think she has to improve her, uh, her power to get back to where she was, though, because she just looks like, you know, in some ways a shell of who she used to be, physically almost more than anything, talking about body issues again, which I know is a sensitive topic, but she's so much thinner than she was when she was winning her big titles. And I think her her weakness, which was her movement, has gotten better. 
but the strength isn't there anymore. And uh, you have to keep your strengths, not just fix your weaknesses in order to be, stay on top. Entirely fair. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think that, uh, I mean, my take is the same as Ben's. I mean, I think that the, the progression to the quarterfinals was more of a mental victory yeah. than an actual physical one. The last time that Anna beat a top 10 player was at Indian Wells. Uh, beating uh, Caroline uh, when Caroline was number four in straight sets, and then beating Marion when Marion was number seven in straight sets, and then she retired to Karapova in the semifinals. I'm not sure either of those players are top ten anymore. That's a good question. No, I think Marion still is. Marion might be number ten, but yeah. Caroline's Caroline's out of ten. I'm seven top ten, but uh, but yeah, I mean it's it's been a real long time since I feel like Anna has had a notable win. Which isn't her fault. I mean, she's she's winning the matches that she's getting better at winning the matches she should win. Yeah, that is step one. But uh, you know, if you discount, I mean, if you discount Carolina Marion from Indian Wells, the last top ten player before that was Zavana Riva in Beijing. Which, I mean, really, again, not a top tenner anymore. Um, but I, I I wouldn't I would not discount um, Bartoli at Indian Wells. That was a solid match, even if Bartoli did start to get the Indian Wells bug, I think. Sure. Um, in that tournament, um, but and Wozniacki was a legit was number four, I think, at that point in the rankings when she when she beat her. So uh, these, those are we we shouldn't shrug off those ones completely, but these are not the kind of uh, accomplishments that a former Slam winner number one should be needing to hang her hat on. She no, should but- be doing better based on her '08 results, just looking at on paper. Yeah, they, they don't really give you confidence you know, as one who's, I mean, they might give her confidence, but they don't give you a pundit looking at it confidence. No. Because she hasn't proven that she can do it, uh, beat the big beat the big girls, and, and until she can, much like what we were talking about before about that Ferrer-Tipsarovic match, Anna kind of falls in that area where it's like, yeah, she might have some good wins and she might um, play really well and, and create, you know, have these really epic matches. But does she have a, t- a chance at the title? No. And, and until she proves that, that she can break through that, she's a bit, um, I don't know, it's harder to kind of talk to talk about her seriously, I think. No, she's just, she's just not as relevant to the top of the game as she used to be. And I do think that, I mean, the ingredients obviously were there and could still be there, but there is improvement she needs to make. Her movement is much better, but the ball striking just is nowhere near as imposing as it used to be, I don't think. I can used to look effortless, and now it looks like it takes effort to generate the same amount of power. And, uh, and she, did say, she did say that was something she was working on at yep. the US Open, getting back her strength and some muscle, but uh, we'll see. In the year. You know, you need you need two, three months off to actually really commit. And so we'll see in Australia. But if Australia, she shows up and she's about the same, she's about the same size, there's some problems there. Yeah. No doubt. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, next question. Let's see here. Not on a related bit. Okay. This one is from Rob Shue. Okay. Hi, Rob Shue. Um. He's pretty happy that we are exhausted and, and not thinking entirely straight. Um, if you could implement anything you wanted, what would it be? And I presume that means tennis. <laughs> yeah. Um, that's a lot of power. Just anything. It is. It is. Um, 
we've talked about it before. I don't know if on air. I don't think we have on air. Um, but we both we we have talked about best of five in its current state. Um, and I just being at the Grand Slam again, especially during the first week, it's just so hard to when you're trying to cover a whole tournament or even just watch a whole tournament as a fan. I feel like um, to sit down and watch any men's match beginning to end. It's just such a time commitment. Agreed. And so many times, it's such a foregone conclusion. I mean, if you're watching, like, I was going to write something about, um, I don't know, Gasquet versus Steve Johnson at some point. But uh, even though I think it wound up being straight sets, it was still sort of long. And it's just once you could tell that Johnson wasn't going to win the match, it was just like, okay, Johnson's clearly not going to win this, and we still have two hours to go. I don't think it's I don't think it's fan friendly. I don't think it's very much not TV friendly. I mean, CBS. I mean, they would have been able to play both of those semis on Saturday if they had been best of three sets. I am for arguments that uh, if they want to do just best of three first week and then second week do best of five, so the slams have something unique about them or climactic or epic. Fine, but best of five all the way through at slams, I think, is just not necessary. I mean, tennis is. This takes so much longer than it used to. That's fair. That's, uh, yeah, no, I could be down with that. Um, I think that for me, the, <laughs> uh, what would I do? I would probably, <laughs> I would probably have it so that Wimbledon, which, uh, is, I mean, gets a crap load of money from uh, members, from debenture holders, and things like that, uh-huh. uh, would actually have way more, like, um, like fans allowed into the bottom area. In other words, increase the amount of tickets that are available for the queue um, that, that are down below in the lower bowl of, like, center court and court one, and kind of keep kind of the posh, posh, People, if they want to build corporate seats, they can do it because they, Wimbledon could actually sell them as opposed to the U.S. Open where it's a little bit, I don't know, they're, they're a little bit far away from Ash. They're, they're not great. But I, I would love to see Wimbledon really have the same, same sort of fan attendance that the Olympics had. Yeah. So more just the people, like the people's people. People, um, people. Yeah, the people's people who are going to be loud and crazy and do, you know, um, there's only one Andy Murray chance and things like that. I, I would really actually love that. And um, I think that the Olympics really showed the All England Club could be a little bit different than what it is. And I actually liked what I saw, apart from the empty seats, which... A ticketing you know, issue, yeah. Ticketing issue. But but I'd really like to see those fans like packed down below and, you know, kind of screaming and, and you know, Murray running around and giving high fives because you totally would do it. I, I would love to see that. Do you want to see that um, at the U.S. Open, too? I mean, do you want somehow there will be cheap seats at the bottom? Because right now, I mean, the bottom of Ash is better than Wimbledon in terms of liveliness, but it's not quite Olympic caliber. Personally, to me, I think that every slam should put aside a certain a certain number of seats in the lower bowl of their main show court that are available for face value or cheaper to people who line up for them, who camp out for them, because these are people who want to be there and they will appreciate those seats. They will cheer. They will be invested. I mean, I think it would be great. Like, you know, like 
if somebody, you know, some New Yorker camped out for two days, like on that weird rickety wooden thing. Ugh, hate that thing. Freak me out. But in order to get tickets to like a middle or a Monday night session, that guy who's sitting courtside is going to change the tenor of the entire crowd. Or just bring in Vivica, because Vivica really could do that herself. Why bring in Vivica at all four slams? Done. Absolutely. Vivica in the chair. (laughs) Vivica will make calls for you. Vivica, because we don't really talk about this, but we alluded to it earlier. Vivica A. Fox was at the Venus Kerber match and was so loud. It was shockingly, shockingly loud. And I was sitting in a group of German reporters, um, and they were so offended by her. They, They hated her so much. And um, I eventually um, told one that, because I actually didn't know who was making all that noise, but they were there at the beginning. I came in like at the second changeover or something in the first set. And they were like, oh, that's actress. Will not shut up. And I was like, oh, what? And they were like, they pointed to her and I could see this woman, because I could hear this shouting, but I thought it was just some fan of the upper deck. But no, it was Vivica A. Fox in the, in the Moet suite having uh, several complimentary beverages and uh, letting her thoughts known on the whole match. And uh Shouting out, out whenever she thought the ball was out, or just even if it was a good shot the Venus hit, she'd be like, "Uh huh, that's good." Like mid rally, and they were so offended. So I eventually assured one of the German reporters that she should watch Kill Bill one was, because uh, Vivica dies very early yeah. in that movie in quite spectacular fashion. So and she was like, "Oh, I would have to run that. that makes me feel better." So <laughs> that was fun. Let's see, any other questions? Yeah, lots actually. Oh boy. I think that we addressed this, but thoughts on whether or not Vika's performance on and off the court will have an impact on her public perception? Um, to be determined. It very well could. I mean, we can't predict how the public will react. I mean, yeah, you just can't. I mean, people don't become popular based on any sort of, uh, you know, formula. It's it's more organic than that. Hope. I mean, it should. There are ingredients there that do let her do that because she did show more sort of accessibility and her tennis was also really, really good on a bigger yeah. stage. I mean, U.S. Open is a bigger stage to the world than Australia just because of time zones. Um, so a lot of people probably hadn't seen her before. However, there still are things about her that make her, that could hold her back, especially the noise. I think her noise, her type of grunting bothers people more than Sharapova's type, um, just because it's sort of weirder sounding. Um, so we'll see. I mean, it very well could, but I'm, yeah, I'm going to say too determined on that. How about you? I think, I think Vika's, uh, uh, grunting slash shriek more of a rhythmic thing than a effort thing. Yeah. It doesn't sound like exertion. Right. Where Sharapova sounds like she's killing someone when she hits a tennis ball. Or being Vika, killed. Or being killed. Uh, Vika doesn't sound like that. You know what I mean? It's yeah. more of a timing issue. And I think that that rubs people the wrong way. I think that as well, and this is not, what I'm going to say right now is not an indictment of her. Okay. More it's an indictment of, I think, the public, is that, you know, Vika scowls on court. She's a jock. I mean, she, she's, she's a jock. She, she, she struts. She walks out there with her hoodie up, with her beats in, and she's cranking club music, you know. And I think that for, for, for fans, which is probably the majority of tennis fans, who, who really kind of fell in love with the sport when it was back in the day of Tracy Austin and, and Chrissy Everett and Steffi Graf. And, or even just Wimbledon, you know, even modern Wimbledon. 
you know, just kind of a traditional girlish demeanor, which I'm not going to even waste 45 minutes debunking that, but I'm just saying that this is what people think. Uh-huh. Um, you know, Vika's a tough one to attach to. And, uh, you know, she, she's, um, she's a boxer in, a, in the tennis world. In, on the women's side, in the same way that Andy Murray was, except that Andy Murray had Britain behind him. Yeah. And Vika doesn't yeah. have anything behind her. So it, it's tougher, I think, for her. I, I would agree with all of that as well. Let's see. Andy Murray, oh, this is also from 3015, who has been asking these questions. Hi, 3015. What's up, dude? Happy face tennis ball avatar. I got a lot of happy face tennis ball. That's good. Happy. It's a tennis ball. Yeah. Andy Murray won a slam, but it seemed more inevitable than groundbreaking. Thoughts on if this is good for the ATP? Go, Ben. Go, me. Um, okay. Um, it did. That was the thing. I was talking to a couple of the British, or one British reporter about this in particular. Um, Eleanor, I think you may know. Justin? No. Eleanor Crooks? Nope. Don't know. Oh, anyway. Yeah, I was talking to Eleanor about this, and basically, what it wasn't like a big climactic moment of like shock when he won. He's been knocking on the door for so long, and finally he did it, and it just kind of happened. You know, it wasn't earth shattering that it happened because he was so de- he'd been so deserving of being in the conversation for so long. Does it help the ATP? I do. I do think it helps the ATP because Federer and Nadal aren't going to be around forever, and they need to, you need to have sort of a transitional period where guys who are the next generation or even, you know, are going to last longer. Maybe Murray will be around for, what, I don't know, six, seven more years, whereas Federer and all might be around for only three more years or so. Um, just, those are not going you know, to be like, don't anyone who are fans of those people like, freak out that like, I'm, you know, setting life expectancies for them. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, those are, uh, that's about what it's going to be. Murray's just younger, and so having him show that he's a legit contender, I think it's good for the health of the, of the men's game. Because there is going to need to be a next step after Federer at all. Won't last forever. And Djokovic um, will last longer theoretically, but he doesn't have quite the same uh, broad-based appeal that Federer and Adal, or even Murray have, I think, when you talk about the fan bases. So, yeah, that's what I think. How about you, Courtney? Well, I mean, I think that you and I have both gone off many times about the need for there to be more parity than the, the ATP about the need for there to be more a balance of, of talent and not to say that Andy Murray's win really, you know, uh, solidifies that because the bottom line is he was, he wasn't top three, but he wasn't the rest of the guys either. There was such a gap between four and five. There still is. It was Andy Murray. He was the guy that was, that was legitimately knocking on the door and everybody else was a pretender. And so, you know, is it good for men's tennis? I think that it is. And I will kind of go back to, to what I said before about Andy Murray, about being a self-made champion, about being a guy who really made it through work ethic. And I know that people are going to come back and say, well, are you saying that Rafael Nadal's lazy or Djokovic? No. Everybody busts their ass yeah. to be the best in the world. But Andy Murray, I think, was not gifted with the innate gifts that the other three were. And, and in order to shape himself and to create himself to be a slam champion, he had to bust his ass to do it. And I think that that's something that the other members of the tour, the other guys of the tour need to see. 
that it's not about just like one day you were lying in a crib and some fairy came down and tapped you on the head and gave you gifts that no one else would have. Right. But that it is actually in your power to build yourself and to create yourself and to mold yourself into a player who can compete and win slams. And I hope and, people recognize that that in the locker room, Bat Murray. I, do, I don't know if they do. I don't know if they do either. But I, But if anybody were to say to me, no, what you're saying is wrong, I would ask them, what natural gifts do you think that Andy Murray had? The brain? I mean, that's as close as you can get as being clever, but the, his cleverness gets him in trouble. It does. It's not he, he, does he does have good feel, which maybe it's tougher to learn. Good hands, like whatever, but that's, you know, again, that's not something that, like, you look at and you say, I mean, sometimes Novak does things that you feel like are not humanly possible. Yeah. But, the way he moves is just weird. You know, yeah. If anyone tried to imitate that, any other player, they would need, you know, an on-staff on-site chiropractor to help them immediately. Snap in half. Rafa hits the ball and and, and defends and, and competes in a way that no one else has. Fed, let's not even start. Balletic, he makes it look effortless. It, it's it's art, the way yeah. that Roger Federer plays the sport. Andy Murray is none of those things. So it, it should give the Burdiques, the, the Songas, the Ferrer, the, the Del Pocos, and, hope. And, and, and Tomas, especially in that group, I mean, he has gifts that Burdich, that, sorry, that uh, that Murray doesn't have. I mean, he has the big forehand, the big serve, the big power. I mean, right. he he can be, he can do it. He could do it. Yeah. He has more height. Del Potro too. Um, well, Somebody... Del Potro has more health issues, I guess. But I mean, yeah, people can do it. ATP, you guys, you know, you know, look yourself in the mirror and say, I am good enough. I can do it. People like me, etc. Get Stuart Smalley on staff at the ATP. Absol- absolutely. So. I mean question came up, Ben, uh, during my live blog. Um, now that Murray has won a slam, mm-hmm. who's the best active player to not win a slam? Man or woman or just men? Men. Men. Ugh. Big drop-off. I mean, Murray was had that title, really. If, he, if Murray wound up not winning a slam, he would have had the title for all time, indisputably. Exactly. Indisputably. He's so much better than Dementia was, who's the other person who gets mentioned. We talked a lot about dementia during the two live vlogs. I oh, had. really? Everybody was just like, oh, I miss Elena Dementia. And I was like, could you imagine how Vera would be just out of her mind right now? Yeah. 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 Um, no, Dementia, they both won Olympic gold, but Dementia doesn't have the sort of master's title equivalents that Murray has racked up. Doesn't have um, the, as many finals. Anyway, so now, who is it? Um, it's not Ferrer. Said very quickly because Ferrer has never made a Grand Slam final, nor has he won a Masters. Um, he just doesn't have the the really the bona fides to to get that title. Um, it comes down to then Burdich or Sanga or even Sutterling, mm-hmm. if you're counting as an active person. I think. Sure, sure. Um, between them, I don't know. Based on raw talent, I think it's Malfis. I've said that before. I think he's the you know biggest underachiever in terms of upside potential that there is an ATP right now. So, uh, yeah. I don't know. How about you? Who do you pick? I'll, I'll, if I had to pick one name, I'll pick Murdich. Yeah, no. I, I uh, After much thought and debate, I was really, really tempted to pick Burdich. Yeah. I think that um, he, just by a nose, I, I just think that uh, both Sangha and Burdich are, are unpredictable and obviously they can, they can come in and out, but I feel like Sangha... 
an amazing tennis player despite himself. Yeah. I feel like he, he, he when he winds up and hits serves or forehands, it's it's almost untaught, you know, what he does. Whereas Burdick is effortless when he's on. Burdick has, has so much just natural talent. Much, so much. And uh, so I, I would probably say Burdick over, over Sangha, but most people in the live blog were saying Sangha. Okay. How about women's side? Active to never win a slam? Yeah. Ooh. That's the thing. It's like everybody's getting slammed slightly. I know. That's the thing. It's like the, the people just hand them out. Uh, Got to be Bartoli. Bartoli over Advanska? Yeah. Interesting. Um, I like that answer. Um, um, I might, Bartoli, I mean, this person hasn't been around at the top as long, but if she hangs around playing as well as she is, it's going to be Kerber pretty soon, I think. Sure. Kerber, I've been, I was so impressed by Kerber in Cincinnati. Okay. Um, and, uh, yeah, Kerber, I don't know what Kerber was doing losing to Irani. I didn't get to see most of that match, but that result just did not uh, Ronnie compute played, for me. Well, Ronnie played really well, but, but yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, does that make sense? I mean, a, Kerber was forced to be the aggressor, and she couldn't be. Yeah, she couldn't generate any of her own pace. Do it. Yeah. So, you know, that that's a big problem. But uh, Let's see here. What other questions we have? Okay. So this is from TJC05. Hi, TJC05. Who, I have to say, TJC05, who has a Wisconsin's Badger avatar, you amuse me. I don't always retweet your responses, but they are always awesome. Good. Yeah, know that, know that, know that we don't, just because we don't, you know, respond to things, we don't see them and appreciate them always. It's just hard to do everything always. Exactly. So here's the question. Since it's an election year, if you had to make some campaign promises, what should we look forward to from the ATP and WTA next year? Oh, that's a good question. Great question. Um, what, what's your 2013 platform? My 2013 platform. Men is tough. Let me start with women. Women is much easier to start right now because women, I mean, we have, I would just go from this great US Open final that we had. I mean, you have Azarenka, the number one, who's really shown that she serves number one, relishing it for once, and is really embracing the pressure. Pressure is a privilege for her, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, Serena, one of the greatest of all time, now 15 slams. Can she keep going? Has anyone ever played as well as she does at her best? Uh, Sharapova, also career slam winner, um, brings so much to the court. You never know if she's engaged or not. There's a lot of intrigue there. Um and then, uh, yeah, great other champions like Venus sort of hovering around. Uh, who else is it? Petra Kvitova, really, a lot of raw talent, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, there's just so many names in there who can become relevant in big ways in, in the WTA. And I think the 2013 will be a big year to watch, the women. For the men, I don't know what we're getting in 2013. Um, maybe it'll be the maybe Murray will back this up and show that he really is the real deal and will start becoming, adding more and more slam titles to his... Uh, roster now that he's you know broken through the dam the water will start spilling out slamishly i don't know um and then the golden era still remains that's about that but i don't i just on a non-campaign level i don't know what we're gonna get from atp next year i just have no idea yeah it's tough what are, what are your promises courtney um i promise the atp will not boycott the slams yeah the concept of that completely ridiculous 
uh, you know, the ATP is, if you read Christopher Clary's piece in the New York Times, they're, they're looking for a 250% increase in prize money in one year. Uh, otherwise, they will boycott, apparently, the Aussie Open and go play some random tournament in Doha where they get, where they get paid as much. I have a hard time believing that the top four really believe that that's what the best in their personal interests yeah. when they're in history. So to me, the Sergei Sikovskis, the, the Yanko Tarviches of the world can kind of just keep mouthing off about this whole equal prize about not being able to afford Ferraris, whatnot. Uh-huh. It's complete bull. So I think that, that the, the top four will drive what the, the ATP calendar is next year. Yeah, I don't think I don't think the equal prize money thing is necessarily the main ATP gripe. No, but it, it, I think it's the most I think it's the most easily um, refutable one but, that but, fans sort of have latched onto. But yeah, it's not their main one. No, it's not their main one, but it is a major point because if the if the slams had never committed to playing paying equal prize money, it would not be a two hundred fifty percent increase. Yeah, that's true. It, it's the figure is so big because. In order to match what the ATP wants, it, the slams would have to match what the WTA wants, and that's why the figure is so large. Yeah, I mean, I just think that the, the, w, the, the ATP is just being idiotic about it, to be quite frank. Um, and so we'll see in the offseason how it, how it goes, but there's no way they're getting anything more than 75% of what they're asking for. Yeah, that seems, that seems fair. I think that, and also they could get it over time. I mean, part of what was the big issue for what they're asking for is they want so much so quickly. If maybe if they can, the Australian Open or the ITF or the Slams can come together and say, okay, we agree to increase, you know, Slam money 10% a year for each of the next 10 years. Right. You know, stair step it up to make it more manageable for everybody. That could that could be that could happen. I sure. The sort of immediate windfall they want is just a little much. No, I mean it's a, it's a ridiculous thing. I, I <clears throat> I'll be honest. I I don't really sympathize. I mean I sympathize conceptually with the players insofar as the slams do make a lot of money and and they're not sharing it in a way that 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 really reflects you know the players' take of that. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, the players are coming at it as though they think this is like a brand new venture and that the the, the tournaments don't ha- already have certain obligations. That they are, you know, tied to. Uh, These organizations are non-profit organizations. You know, and so These tennis federations. It's a bit ridiculous, and and it it is to be said, and I've said it before on this podcast. It's very hard to feel bad or feel for a guy who's complaining about wanting more money for losing. Yeah, essentially. It's really, I mean, it's tough. You, know, you have people who are losing first rounds at slams who are saying, I should be paid more for losing. Uh, sorry. I mean, I understand conceptually what you're arguing. Yeah. But what, they, what they need to do, really, is they need to up on your money. Yes. Challenger money and futures money, I think it's been the same for the last uh, 20 years. It's not adjusted for inflation whatsoever. And there used to be $100,000 challengers in the uh, 80s. I might be completely wrong with this, but I think there were. And now those same big challengers still offer the same amount. And just things are so much more expensive than they used to be. And players aren't who are not at the top have such a tougher time keeping up with the 
the Joneses of the world, or the Murrays even. I mean, Murray talked about how much work he put in. He has a big old team that puts in a lot of resources into his tennis. They have all these crazy things they do where they, like, you know, measure his urine to check his nutrition levels, like, once a day. Like, somebody who's top 100 can't, or not top 100, can't compete with that on any sort of level. And so I understand why they need that to stay competitive, but it shouldn't all come from losing first round. ITF, ATP, which run these lower tournaments, should be the ones to sort of give these guys a safety net. Exactly. I absolutely agree. So that's, a, so that's one prediction. I think uh, another campaign platform that I have uh, into 2013, Petra Kvitova will be healthy. Okay. 2013. I think that's, uh, I'm banking on that. That's a, that's a good campaign promise. That's the kind of thing you can't really control completely, but it's a good thing to promise. Vote for me because yeah. I tell you that Petra will be, I will guarantee you that Petra will be healthy next year. And that, to me, personally, changes everything. Yeah. If Petra's healthy, the entire WTA landscape is altered. Um, she can be a contender at all four slams. Yep. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yep. So, and then the other platform that I have is that <laughs> whether you like it or not, the top four will dominate. Men and women are just men. Men. Okay. Status quo. Status quo. People like status quo. People do. So I'm offering a little bit of both. I'm offering some status quo, a little bit of, you know, change and uh I'm pr- I'm pretty happy with how I've come out of this. So so you're gonna you're gonna say that uh no new slam winners for the men twenty thirteen? No. Okay. No way. I think I would agree with that. No nice. I think they're all more vulnerable. Or sorry, I think Murray is less vulnerable than he used to be, but the other three are all more vulnerable. Um, so, yeah. So we'll see. I don't really have evidence to back that up, per se. I am curious to see what happens to Rafael Nadal next year, because from everything I've been hearing from people who have been talking to the Nadal camp, um, it's not like he couldn't have played the U.S. Open. No, but I, I saw that interview with Chris Clary on uh, Tennis Channel, and he was talking mm-hmm. How from the discussions that he has had with Nadal Camp, it sounds like they're really kind of uh, shoring Rafa up for the second push of his career. Yeah. So or even last push, where they're putting it. I mean, yeah, there have been reports saying that that his last tournament would be Rio 2016. So, you know, if that's the case, I think it's actually quite wise. I think that that uh, it makes sense and. Um, I don't know. I mean, I feel like this year really taught us that we can't really read into these guys. You know, I mean, Novak, AO, you know, when he was number one, Rafa was number two, wins Roland Garros, Fed, everybody rolled off, was number three, wins uh, Wimbledon, Andy Murray was number four, and people didn't know what to think of him, but he he wins the U.S. Open. I think there's just a lot of questions to to be answered in 2013, for sure. I, I would agree. That's why it's hard to promise things. But the politicians we are, we will try. Yes, we do. Any other, any other questions for us? No, that was the last one. All right. Cool. Well, thank you all for your questions and for listening. This was a very long episode. Yes. Um, but it was the last slam of the year. And hopefully we covered everything. I, don't, I feel like we didn't cover everything, but we covered a lot anyway. Lot, and so even if, you, even if it's a buffet that didn't have what you were in the mood for, you know, you can still stuff your face with it. There you go. There you go. Toast for all. Yes. We'll see you soon, hopefully. Um, slow period in tennis coming up. Uh, I guess Davis Cup semis are next. Um, those could be interesting, but 
probably not earth shading earth shaking and there's the big old uh quebec city tournament which should be fun so in the words of uh yule putin see you next time